This is Pave It Black. Hi, and welcome to Pave It Black, the official podcast for the National Asphalt Pavement Association. My name is Richard Willis. And I'm Brett Williams. And today we're continuing on the theme of sustainability, but we want to take it from a slightly different angle. As most people know, in January of 2022, Napa announced its initiative called the Road Forward to move the horizontal construction industry with the asphalt pavement to net zero by 2050. But the reality is the construction industry in general has been dealing with sustainability and trying to understand its place in this topic for over a decade now, especially in the area of vertical construction. So today I'm looking forward to hear from someone that's made a career in sustainable construction and hear a little bit about the vision for the future of sustainability or the future on sustainability, as well as maybe catch some areas where the asphalt industry might have opportunities to catch up in some areas. So to help us understand this topic a little bit more today, we've invited Kelly Roberts, who's a principal with Walter P. Moore. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. And just as we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and and Walter P. Moore and what y'all do? Sure. So I'm Kelly Roberts, a structural engineer, senior project manager, and principal with Walter P. Moore. I've been with the firm a little over 15 years. Walter P. Moore is a international engineering firm with multiple engineering disciplines. We started primarily as structural engineers, but have gone into several other disciplines of engineering, including civil and water resources. We have building diagnostic engineers and facade engineers. So we do kind of a little bit of everything in the engineering space with respect to buildings. The big focus of our work is primarily architectural driven commercial building design. So we're dealing with a lot of vertical structures. We deal in multiple market sectors, including healthcare, hospitality, higher ed, a lot of sports, as well as commercial, you know, you name it, we're kind of doing it in terms of buildings. And then, as I mentioned, we have a lot of different kinds of engineers and also some architects as well that work for us. So we touch a lot of different sectors of the building industry. We've been in business since the 30s. And we are a employee-owned company with over 100 principals. I think we're just over about 700 people now. And as I mentioned, we're, we're international and have, I think, close to 30 offices now. So you work in construction, but it's a little bit different than building highways. So I'm curious if you could maybe start by sharing what sustainability really means to you and your work. Sure. So my main focus in sustainable design is in in materials and embodied carbon. So embodied carbon is the emissions associated with all the materials that we use to create anything. And in my case, it's the materials that we use to create a building. So it's all of the carbon dioxide emitted by extracting, manufacturing, transporting, and installing materials. And every year, uh, 66 billion square feet of buildings are constructed. And so the embodied carbon of that construction is huge. It's 3.8 billion metric tons of CO2 per year. So it's a massive amount of carbon that we're responsible for. And so for me, as a structural engineer, much of the embodied carbon that's actually in a building is in the materials that I specify. So in concrete, in steel, in wood, the high carbon materials that dominate the embodied carbon of a building. 
So for me, driving down the impact of those materials that I specify, that's where my focus lies. That's where my passion and experience lies. You've talked about you've now been in this space really for around 15 years. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen related to sustainability or even what have been some of the most impactful changes that you've seen over this last 15 years? Yeah, well, actually, when I got started in this space, embodied carbon wasn't being discussed at all. And actually, I think it took about a couple of years for me in this space for even embodied carbon to start being talked about even in small circles. I started getting involved in whole building life cycle assessment, which is the quantification essentially of environmental impacts associated with materials about 10 years ago. But up until recently, this really hadn't been getting very much attention and body carbon was not a buzzword in the industry yet because operational carbon was really the big focus because operational in terms of buildings has a bigger impact on the total building over its life cycle. And so that's where the focus has been. It's been on operational carbon. It's just a bigger piece of the pie. And so the focus was on driving down operational carbon, driving down that EUI, the energy use intensity. But the critical issue regarding embodied carbon that people really started to rally around is that it happens day one, right now, when the building opens. And there's no future efficiency or cleaning of the grid or installation of PV panels that's ever going to drive it down. It's always there. And it's happening right now in this critical time period that the IPCC says is to limit our impact on the planet. Because of that, embodied carbon started gaining a lot of momentum. And so it's really become, I think, a big focus in in the industry. And people have realized that as we approach 2050 and try to decarbonize the building industry, that we can't get there without focusing on this piece of the pie. So I'm I'm interested in how or why sustainability became important for Walter P. Moore. You kind of have talked about how it's come into the industry in the last 10 years or so, but I'm kind of interested from like the company standpoint, like how it's valued or why it's important. Sure. So Walter P. Moore embraced stewardship as one of its core values. So as such, we're committed to environmental stewardship And we're committed to ensuring that environmental stewardship is considered in our projects. We were one of the first firms to sign on to the Structural Engineers 2050 Commitment Program, or SE2050. As it's called, it's basically a similar program to AIA 2030, except this is for structural engineers. It's a commitment to understand, reduce, and ultimately eliminate embodied carbon in the firm's construction projects by the year 2050. And as part of that commitment to reducing embodied carbon, we also issued a report titled Embodied Carbon, A Clearer View of Emissions. So it's this big report with a lot of thought pieces and case studies where we kind of tried to explain how we're tackling embodied carbon at Walter P. Moore, what we've seen work on projects, what we see coming and trends and stuff in in the industry. But essentially sustainability is really important to our clients and it's therefore important to our firm and we've made commitments to that end. I think one of the things that's challenging when you're in the construction space is that there are all kinds of different markets and people that you have to work with and all of those have different priorities. Sometimes you're working for private companies that have to report back to investors. Other times those private companies are family-owned companies 
that do what they feel is important for their their business. Other times it's you're working for local or federal governments designing pieces. And so what have you seen in terms of differences in working for these different types of customers in their acceptance or adopting different either sustainability metrics like LCA and and EPDs or even green rating systems or or trying to incorporate some of these things in their design and procurement? I think the biggest differences are the the motivators of these different entities. You know, the motivators for choosing a sustainable design path varies a good bit across projects from it being just the right thing to do or hoping for higher lease rates by trying to sell, you know, that lead rating or a living building status, hoping to recoup those costs on the back end or aligning with corporate ESG plans. You know, this is a big thing happening in the industry right now. A lot of people are coming up with ESG plans and they want to be aligned with those plans, either for investors or for recruiting, lots of different reasons that people have those plans or being mandated by some jurisdiction, an AHJ or a governing body, different municipalities around the country are taking up different stances on green building codes, either adopting IGCC or coming up with some of their own codes or prescriptive requirements. We've seen a lot of that pop up around the nation. Sometimes with governmental bodies, they can have prescriptive requirements, which can sometimes be outdated and inflexible. That can sometimes be a real problem for sustainability because sustainability needs to follow usually new technologies needs to try new things, new ways of doing what we used to do. And if you're stuck on how we always did it, just because we always did it that way, instead of taking a more performance-based approach, that can be kind of difficult for injecting sustainability into a project. I don't run into this too much, but I know that sometimes in the infrastructure world, there can be these prescriptive requirements kind of put on concrete mixed designs, for example, because this is how we've always done it. But that can sometimes be be a hindrance. So I, I would hope that people would be trying to change that and tr- trying to progress that into a more performance-based approach. Kind of along that line, one thing I was interested in learning a little more about is in the vertical construction world, I've heard of some maybe less traditional to our marketplace delivery systems, like an integrated project delivery. So I'm curious if you have ways that working outside of like that traditional low bid market and how these systems might impact the ability to meet sustainable objectives. Yeah, in integrated project delivery, typically design and construction partners are brought on to a project early and in an environment where you want the team to win as a whole, right? And of course, the sooner sustainable design goals for a project are discussed, the better, of course. There's always a much greater likelihood of success when all parties are brought to the table early and clear intentions are set from the get-go. Sustainability doesn't always have to cost extra. That's, I think, a misconception about sustainability. It, It doesn't have to be that way. It can be baked into the design from the beginning. Better material choices don't have to be more expensive. Sometimes they just need to be coordinated, discussed, and planned for. So in an integrated project delivery environment, or really in any kind of, we call it design assist environment, where all parties are at the table early, regardless of the contractual requirements, there's a lot of contract requirements that go along with an IPD project. 
But even if people are just at the table early, sitting around a table early, talking about sustainable design and how to inject it into their project, you're going to have more success. Material suppliers and subcontractors, they're your friend, not your adversary. If you want the best solutions, you have to bring them to the table early. One example of that is on my projects, I always want to engage the concrete supplier as soon as possible to hear what they can bring to the table at the moment, because it's always changing in that industry. Technologies are evolving. Materials are available, not available. We see supply chain swings there and advancements are constantly continuing. So we want to make sure that we're having those conversations with material suppliers early and often, of course. You talked a little bit about how embodied carbon was something that you've kind of seen a shift over your career. I remember when we were in school together, I don't think the words embodied carbon came up once in our entire curriculum, but now it it is something that is becoming more and more common and becoming more and more of a focus. And sometimes, like you said, it's, it's a personal preference. We've seen federal legislation recently that's bringing up embodied carbon and its importance. And so we've seen that evolution happen. What are some of the other evolutions that you think may kind of be coming or you kind of see on the horizon? And how can we as a construction industry start looking to make progress in these areas or adapting to those types of changes? Because it is a different way of thinking. In some ways, it's even a different education piece that people are having to learn because I said, it's not something that our generation was taught in school or even discussed in many ways. That's right. I mean, I think we are seeing it discussed a lot more in schools now. And so there's definitely a generation coming behind us that have some of this knowledge, at least. I'm interviewing more and more people that took whole building life cycle assessment classes in college or have some like interest or knowledge in this area. And it's so interesting to me that people are coming out with this kind of like base level of knowledge now. So that is wonderful to see. I think in the future, in terms of sustainability trends, we're going to see a focus on total carbon. So really focusing on the whole picture. And when we're talking about total carbon for buildings, we're talking about operational plus embodied plus transportation. So all the transportation impacts that are occurring for people getting to and from that building, using that building, supplies being delivered to that building, looking at that whole carbon picture and being able to kind of add it up and then drive it down, right? There's more discussion around that total carbon picture. Since I function largely in the materials space, the other things that I see coming for materials is a focus on healthy materials. We've heard about that for a while with health product declarations, HPDs. We hear a lot about EPDs right now, environmental product declarations for materials, HPDs. They've been talked about for actually quite some time, but people don't know how to reconcile them with the environmental impacts. And so I think in the next decade, we're going to see a reconciliation of health impacts and environmental impacts and making sure that we're focusing on both of those. So I think there's going to be a bigger focus on healthy materials. And then there's also, I think, a lot of discussion around circularity. So the circularity of materials, their end life, their end of use, their salvage value, their recycling value, what's happening to materials. This is already captured a little bit within whole building lifecycle assessment with their environmental impact. But there's a lot more discussions, I think, happening around waste and what that means and if we should even be calling it waste. Right. 
So I think those are some trends that you'll see happening in sustainability, at least within the materials space in the next decade or so. Yeah, it's interesting you note that we actually did an investigative kind of little piece of research a few years ago on HPDs and trying to figure out that. And and there are definitely some challenges, like you said, in kind of getting all these different facets to mesh together and understand how they all work, because it does add layers of complexity and layers of, of information, which we don't necessarily know how to discern or put on a scale where we judge things together. That's absolutely right. I mean, we're having the same discussions regarding sustainability and resilience. That you know, resilience is another big term that gets discussed in our industry a lot more usually on the West Coast with respect to some of the hazards that they have out there with fire and earthquakes. But there are really hazards all around us for buildings. And that's something that is getting discussed a lot more right now, the intersection of sustainability and resilience. And how do we weigh driving down the impact of the first impact, you know, the first cost, but also planning for the future. So trying to strike that balance between not impacting too much now, but also planning for later, which can be difficult and and creates some tension. That's a difficult conversation to navigate as well. But you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people that look at those two terms and think that they're they're synonymous. and, And a lot of times they're not. Like there are times like, yes, I could design this building or this road to withstand this event, but it'd almost be cheaper on a cost and an environmental impact standpoint to rebuild the road completely or rebuild the building completely for what I would have to do to beef up the structure enough to withstand this. And it is a little bit of a challenge sometimes because it is a new way of trying to assess performance. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it really is about performance-based design and understanding the performance drivers, right? And I think a big topic of discussion around sustainability and resilience is really just going to be designing for appropriate service life, establishing the service life ahead of time and designing for that service life. Because the way that you design maybe a multifamily complex and hospital, they shouldn't be the same, right? They need to be designed for appropriate service lives for those types of elements. And I think then you can probably drive to sustainability and resilience requirements when you're thinking about it in that light. But of course, even that can be hard to predict because there's a lot of thought that we're designing for changing environmental factors with rising sea levels and designing for you know floodplains and increasing. So that can be difficult as well when we're trying to design for somewhat of a moving target that we're trying to predict. I'm kind of curious to go back to you talking about some of the challenges with maybe the more traditional specifications or codes or things, requirements that are put on construction. And often it can be governmental that kind of stick to those. And if touching on what you were just talking about, where like you're talking about performance and really focusing in on like service life and designing the product for what's needed. I just was curious if that's kind of the avenue that you found success to kind of overcome some of those challenges with traditional requirements, or if there are other ways that you've kind of attacked that to find ways to make changes to some of those more traditional requirements. Absolutely. I mean, the best path is through a performance-based path, performance-based specifications. Don't specify it if you don't really need it. Don't put a limit on water cement ratio if you don't really need it. 
For us, we're talking about specifying concrete elements specifically per element. So looking at each single one and saying, what performance do I really need? And then only specifying that performance. We specify environmental impact the same way. We specify performance-based characteristics. So when we're doing a whole building lifecycle assessment on a project and what we'll do is we'll basically do performance-based specifications for the environmental impacts. We'll pick some environmental impacts, global warming potential, acidification, eutrophication, and we'll put the limits on those and then basically allow the concrete supplier and then we'll list the other performance specifications for a mix. Let's say it's 5,000 PSI concrete. We want the aggregate to be this size to deal with the type of rebar that we have in the element. We need this air or no air. We need this water cement ratio or no water, you know, don't put a limit there. And then we allow them to come up with the best in class thing that they have to offer to meet those environmental impact performances, as well as the typical strength durability performance aspects as well. When you're looking at more sustainable options, you mentioned it doesn't always cost more money, but I'm like in the back of my mind, like what are some of the other possible compromises that I might be making, you know, I mean, is kind of the things that are going around in the back of my mind is like, well, it did cost more, but does it affect the aesthetics or does it, you know, I mean, like, what are some of the other things that you have to consider when you're looking at maybe some other options? Sure. Sometimes if you want to limit finishes, it could affect the aesthetics. For example, let's say that we can get rid of column covers or ceiling drops trade-offs exist, you know, talking through them and, and what we need and what we don't is what's important. Schedule could be an impact too, or the way that you frame the schedule, or there don't have to be trade-offs. Sometimes we can find savings in sustainability for concrete specifically without really affecting anything. It's just really about having a conversation and not putting prescriptive limits on things that we don't need. It's very common to specify 28-day strengths, for example, for concrete. Well, in a high-rise building, we don't really need that for the foundations. We don't really need that strength till say 56, 90 days. So sometimes talking through the schedule with the contractor and seeing where we can pull some levers can get you to a more sustainable solution just in that way. It doesn't need to cost any money at all. It's just about getting rid of assumptions. We make a lot of assumptions sometimes in our designs about the way things are going to go. But if we can eliminate the assumptions and just deal with the performance that we need at the time we need it, then sometimes we can reach more sustainable solutions in that way. Timber is a big thing that's happening. Mass timber is a big thing that's happening in the building world right now. Those prices obviously fluctuate and whether or not that is more economical or not varies by region and when you're bidding it and all the things. But in timber projects, you can sometimes eliminate a lot of the finishes. So you may not need those drop ceilings or those column covers because it's very beautiful all on its own. It's also lighter structure typically. So sometimes there can be savings in foundations or reuse of existing foundations. We've actually done timber projects just because we needed to reuse foundations and it really couldn't accept the bigger loads that steel composite construction would carry. So there's a lot of different avenues towards sustainable design, and it's really project-specific, region-specific. I think it's really just about having the conversations, establishing the goals, and then determining a path forward. You briefly mentioned that you've seen companies start to look at sustainability and ESG almost as a workforce kind of issue. Could you go a little bit deeper on like some of the experiences that you've had or you've seen in that space? Because 
I see it interacting with some college students still that they're coming out of school and this is something that one, they, they are more educated on than when we were coming out of school, but also it's just more intrinsically important to who they are at that point in their lives. That's right. I mean, we're seeing a lot of corporations use this as part of their recruiting tools. Obviously, the workforce environment is very competitive right now. Everybody's struggling to find the best talent, recruit the best talent, retain the best talent. And so there's a lot of things happening in ESG, also with DEI right now in those spaces that are important to people that are coming into the workplace or just moving around in the workplace and and looking for corporations that I think fit their ethos and fit their goals. And I think we see uh, companies be motivated by this and then want the spaces that they're occupying, the buildings that they're constructing, their capital projects to reflect these goals. So I've definitely seen a lot more of that in the last couple of years and moving forward here than I have previously seen. We typically get also a big influence from European companies, and they're usually a little more progressive than American companies when it comes to those types of issues. And we've seen that kind of flow over from Europe as well. And I've seen that happening in the marketplace as well, just an adoption of those types of ideas. You've talked about a lot of your focuses with materials. I was kind of curious as far as like different materials and how they communicate on sustainability to like the engineering community and maybe if you've seen things that are more effective or less effective in terms of how different materials or different businesses are communicating that information to you or to the consumer, basically? Sure. I mean, first and foremost, structural engineers are structural engineers. We're engineers. We're very fact and science-based. Even me, who is obviously a big proponent of sustainability and sustainable design, I also want the numbers to check out. I'm the engineer of record for my projects, and I have to make sure that they stand up and that they stand the test of time and meet the owner's goals. We can't have low-performing materials in structural engineering. That's never going to be okay, right? So the materials, the technologies that can prove it out, can have the facts to back it up, those are the ones that are successful and that have done the research and done the testing. You know, engineers, they just want to see the numbers. They want to see the black and white. And I think if you can prove that to them, then they'll be more willing to make changes. Well, Kelly, I want to thank you for the time today and your willingness to come and talk to us about something that's a little bit outside of our scope, but I think helps enlighten the listeners and the people in our industry to where we in the road construction industry may be heading in the future. And I think you had some very insightful comments that I I think will open their eyes and and help them think about the way that they operate their business and as an industry, how we move forward in this space too. Sure. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. So my big takeaway from today's conversation is just Kelly's point about how we can maybe start to look at ways to move away from some of those more traditional requirements that help owners or agencies control risk but are doing that in a way that they're just kind of ensuring that they've got what they always have gotten and maybe aren't as focused on performance. And if we move to more what we need to achieve the goals and the performance that is required to do that, that there may be opportunities to improve our sustainability or improve the products or the ways that we are manufacturing or placing our products that can really help 
them achieve their goals as well as industry reduce some of those emissions impacts that are associated with the construction of these projects. So I think that was really the big thing that I took away from today's conversation. And there were quite a few things that I, I wish we could spend some time talking about right now, and whether that's about being willing to have those conversations with your specifiers, or even if you're a subcontractor to your general to, to kind of show them what options you have or but I think one of the things that I always try to stress, and I because she brought it up, I want to bring it up here, is the more local you are, the more likely you're actually going to be able to find sustainable solutions. One of the th- first things I was taught when I was looking into this topic was it stems from a sense of place. So you find solutions at a local level. And she was even talking about it, it goes down to the project level. And that's true. Setting the broad goals and and even specifications related to this may actually hinder people from doing what's right because it doesn't understand the current dilemmas and the current situations that they're dealing with. And there are some parts of the country where water management is a critical issue related to sustainability, where other parts it's not as critical because it's not as rare a resource. And there are times where I think I just want to stress it it is local. And so making sure that you have those conversations and you understand what is going on in a particular district or city or township or street, maybe even, it is really, really important because this is not a fad. It is something that is happening. It is something that is changing and something that's not going to be going away really anytime soon. And so we need as an industry to keep preparing keep being willing to talk about it and show people the numbers. That's what the engineers want. They want to see the numbers. And so let's be ready to share that with you. Thanks for listening to Pave It Black. Visit asphaltpavement.org slash podcast to find more episodes, suggest a topic or guest, become a sponsor, or learn more about NAPA. Pave It Black is produced and copyrighted by the National Asphalt Pavement Association. Music by Colleague. As always, thanks to the dedicated workforce connecting diverse communities all across America. Keep on paving it black.